0: Good morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Josh, uh, North Campus Pastor here at Parkview Church. It's wonderful to see you all uh, this morning. Uh, it's well, also wonderful to have you uh, there if you're watching from home or wherever you are. Um, it is always a delight to uh, to be together and worship God uh, as the people of God. and. Uh, and before I was the preacher, actually, uh, just like decades before I became like the main preacher at you know North Campus or whatever, I was actually in my church known as I was the drummer uh, most weeks. And so this week was like, this is incredible uh, today. That was uh, I was really moved. I was glad I was by the drums there. It was a very worshipful time. Uh, we will continue our uh, our worship um, here in First Corinthians seven. Uh, we are going to do the whole chapter today. So buckle up. Uh, it is good. Uh, it is a, a wonderful text for us today. It, is a, it has been such a treat to uh, the, the, the formative uh, task of preaching. That you are you are servant to the text. You are changed and, and turned by the text. Uh, and so I hope to, to just give you some of some of those notes that come from from time in the scripture this uh, this week. So uh, before we do that, let's turn our attention to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you are a God who is holy, uh, that you are uncreated. Uh, That means a whole awful lot. In your holiness, we sit reverently longing uh, for you, wanting to be right with you and knowing that something is off. And so we come to you. We confess our sins to you. uh, that We have not loved you as the way we ought. We have loved ourselves more than you. We have not loved our neighbors as you have, have directed us this week. And so we confess those sins to you now. We pray that you would forgive us, that we can enter your word confident that you feed your forgiven children with the richness of today. pray that you would give us uh, a work of your spirit, that it would enlighten our hearts and our minds, that we might understand what is here uh, maybe a a nugget here or there, but I pray that you you would raise us all to a higher understanding and reverence of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we sit at the foot of the cross looking towards the dawning of eternity. We thank you for the place you've put in us and the words you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, uh, this, this series in First Corinthians has been uh, just a true delight. We are going through it um, for, for several more months here. Uh, just kind of a recap of where we're at. You know, we're looking at this church in Corinth. Uh, Corinthian church, uh, and it's kind of a church gone sideways. And so as we kind of like lay the church uh, out in, in front of us, we, we get to look in and see how, what, what went wrong, what went right, not a whole lot went right there, but what went wrong uh, and then how Paul addresses them. There's a lot that we can learn just in this dialogue, in this letter, in this exchange from, from uh, between the two. Uh, to see what questions they might be asking and how their understanding of the gospel might be off. Because of those questions, we'll get one today. Uh, and, and we see how Paul is, is not simply just addressing some of their needs. Today, he's going to address a lot of the details of their life, because they're worried about the details of their life. So I'm a Christian. What does this mean for this part of life, this part of life, this part of life? And, and he's going to answer these with a confidence, even sometimes going off- you know, off the off the script a bit, and saying, "Now, this isn't a command from God, but but I, as I understand the gospel, it seems to apply this way to your life this way." And this is a, a an understanding of what the gospel is. So, uh, so I think the task for us today is to, uh, to to be reading through as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. We will we will have our own Corinthian hearts on examination as we look at this idea of marital status. What what is all these different statuses that we have uh, for within marriage? We're going to look even beyond that to look at some kind of uh, employment status. We're going to look at ethnic status uh, as well. We're going to understand uh, a bigger picture of what it means to be the, pe- the people of God in every season of life and whatever God gives you. So having established the wisdom and the way of Christ in chapters 1 through 6, Paul is now going to move in chapters 7 through uh, 14 to flush out some of the practical implications of the gospel uh, for us. But this is no different than what he's been doing uh, and what he will continue doing throughout First uh, Corinthians. What he's doing is he's placing uh, our relationships as the body of Christ. He's placing those uh, in the proper place and with the proper motives. And that's what he's going to be doing here uh, in the chapter today. In 1 Corinthians 7, he'll do that within marital social, um, social, social status. Uh, And he'll answer many of the questions we may have. So here is the urge. If you're a note taker, here's kind of the urge that we get. This is straight from the text, so I'll just not make up my own thing, but give you what he's urging us. Uh, It says here, uh, lead the life the Lord has assigned you. Lead the life the Lord has assigned you. And we have to think about that to understand what it means. And luckily we have a few more minutes, We'll, we'll try and do that. Lead the life the Lord has assigned you. And I would add maybe in whatever context he has put you in, or I think the wording there is whatever context, whatever status he has called you to, and then also to do that with an undivided devotion to God. That's probably my best summary of the entire 40 verses of chapter 7 here. Uh, I I think if I'm going to boil it down to two verses, I'd go with uh, verse 17, and then I'd jump over to verse 35. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him, now jumping over to verse 35, And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So I think the big thing, the big takeaway that we get that's going to help us to lead a life the Lord has assigned us is to understand what has he assigned us, what has he assigned others, and how do we relate to each other. Status is kind of where you're at. In relation to others, right? That's kind of what status means. And so we're going to try and understand what does this mean for us as the body of Christ, as the fellowship of believers, as the community of Christ. Uh, how do we relate to one another and then also understand what we're doing in our own lives when we are Christians? I think the big, one of the big principles is that status does not define you. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a huge <laughs> sigh of relief sometimes, uh, that, that, that if you are single, that isn't your uh, that isn't what defines you. If you're married, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, if you're engaged, that, that's not what defines you. You are a Christian. You are, you, are, you are looking for Christ. That's what defines you. It says, so your status doesn't define you, but rather what then does your status do? If it's not my definition of who I am, what does it do? It, it, it gives me a context in which I learn and I show love of Christ. And so it's going to give you a place, a, a, a special set of circumstances, a status, which you live out your devotion to Christ. You live out the gospel in your every day. So, point one here. Lead the life the Lord has assigned you with your body. Uh, this is verses one through five. So, this is kind of a carryover of the verses, uh, the end of chapter six. Uh, this was preached uh, last week uh, at all of our campuses. Uh, this idea of the use of our body. So, what he's going to do is he's going to kind of pull that theme, but then place it into the context of Marriage. It says, what do we do? How do we glorify God? How do we live out our devotion to God? How do we understand the gospel in the status of marriage? What do we do here? Uh, Verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. so what what do we have here? He says... um, there's this misunderstanding. When we have the gospel kind of in a strange way, we look at this idea of sexual relations. Now, back in chapter 5 and chapter 6, it seems as though the Corinthian church, and maybe our Corinthian hearts when we go this way, say you can do whatever you want with your sexual relations. I mean, that's where they were. That's what, that's what he's writing to. And he's saying I, it's, this is a mistake on two different fronts. Maybe they think Uh, that the gospel is only something that's in our mind and our bodies don't actually matter. I mean, we do that oftentimes, don't we? We go to church, we think about these things, these songs mean a whole awful lot to us, and then we go about doing whatever we want because that part of the world doesn't matter so much to our faith. He's like, that's weird. And your sexual relations are showing that it's weird. But maybe if they do get that those are connected, that the body and the soul and the mind are all connected together in, in, in our spiritual journeys, that they just think that, God is going to forgive everything and, and they lean on that. I'll go do whatever I want this week because I'll come back and confess my sins and he'll forgive me. It's like, you're living in a weird way. This is a weird gospel. You don't have this understood. So, so don't go that way. But then some people, maybe, maybe you you are this way or, or not, you say, hey, you know, if I, if I overstep the boundary on that, I'm gonna make a whole bunch of boundaries and do nothing. So then now the first verse here is what everyone, the ascetics are saying. And maybe sexual relations are just, inherently evil, and we shouldn't do that at all. Maybe we should go all the way to nothing. I've heard a scholar, uh, Gordon Fee, once time say, he says that the, the right response to a bad anything is, is not nothing, but actually like put it in its right good spot. And what Paul's doing here is he's saying, it's not do whatever you want or do nothing, because either one of those is, is, is in a way, just glorifying yourself. You're just going here, you are the God, and at the altar of pleasure. Or you're going here, and your rules of nothingness, you have kind of an, an arrogance that you do nothing there. He says, but really, let's place the use of these sexual relations in the right context, and that's within marriage. And when you do that, the gospel shapes that in your marriage so that it's selfless, so that it is an ongoing, selfless expression of love motivated from the devotion of God. Now, we could read the rest of these verses. I'll let you do that, but he, he kind of talks about how the husband uh, does not own his own body, but, he, but it's the wife's, and, and, and the wife doesn't own her own body, but, but the husband has authority. That he's, not, he's not endorsing uh, an abuse, uh, uh, a guilt tripping uh, uh, within the marriage in this area, uh, nor is he saying you must abstain or withhold within the marriage. He's saying the gospel moves us toward ongoing selfless expression in this area. If you do abstain, from sexual relations within marriage, and it's always within marriage, it says do so in mutual agreement that you will do this. Do so in a limited time and do so to recalibrate your devotion to God. I love that part of It's the reason to abstain is so that you set your hearts right and get a focus again on God. You've made marriage, you've made it bigger than God. You've made this issue bigger than God. Let's pause Remember who's boss. Remember who, is our, who gets our undivided devotion. Now we're good? Now let's go back to living the gospel out in our marriage. It's a beautiful thing. He says, so do this with your body. And as he drops this, uh, just this huge theology down into the real life world, that, that in our marriages, we are living out aspects of the gospel. Uh, this is in uh, Song of Solomon, you know, speaks a lot of this, uh, this idea. Uh, also, Ephesians 5 ta- speaks to this. There's something very mysterious within the marriage, within that context, that the gospel is lived out and practiced. You learn as you are participants in the marriage. You learn the gospel as you participate in the gospel together within marriage. What a sweet way to take our devotion and the gospel and place it in a context of marriage. He's going to go on to a whole bunch of other statuses then as well. So this is a huge, huge swath here. Uh, verses 6 through 24. Lead the life the Lord has, uh, has assigned you within your status. So as I kind of explained, what is a status? A status is that relative, that relationship uh, of, you know, of marriage, of profession, of, uh, of ethnicity. There's kind of all of these uh, different markers that we might have within our society that, that we understand each other uh, in different areas. What Paul's trying to do is just say, we're all equal here. Um, I mean, honestly, he's gonna, he's gonna say, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you're single, it's not like at some point you will return to or you will get to the, to the big kid table. You'll be at the holy table where the married people sit. There's not another level of holiness that happens through marriage. Uh, if you are divorced, it doesn't mean that you got actually kicked out of the dinner party and you have to go to the, like, to the, to the forsaken table. I think we do that in churches, I don't think, okay. We do that in churches. Uh, and, and, and us married people don't even realize how much we may be offending and brutalizing our brothers and sisters by just this, this, this strange sense that Christians must be married. And I, and I say that because I know that it is a thing within the Midwest, that is, that is another level, it seems like, of holiness within Christianity. Uh, but that's not, you say, that, that's not real. That's, that's, not, that's not how this works. There's a, there's a leveling of this. Changing your status for religious reasons is a misunderstanding of the gospel altogether. When you become a Christian, you don't have to finish that Christian act by changing a job, by divorcing your wife or your unbelieving wife or husband, by getting married, um, by, by any of those things. It says that's something different. But You are a Christian, and the gospel applies to you right where you are. Your status does not define you, but rather it contextualizes how you might go about making the most of the time that you were given in the season that you were given. Verse 22, he says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman to the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant to Christ. This is all placed under Christ. No matter what you do, this verse 23 says, no matter what you do, no matter what your status is in this world, we're all bondservants of Christ. And if, and if Christ is our master, and every time he talks about the Lord here in this, in this chapter, uh, the Lord has an authoritative voice that is to be our sole devotion. And he is our master. We are his bondservants. He says, this is what drives everything. We're going to get to this when we say keep an eye on, on the end. But as we go through this, these, these verses here, verses 6 through 16, I think one of the nice suggestions he gives us is to view your marital status as a gift. That's verse 15. I'm sorry, that's verse 6. Uh, now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this I wish that all were single as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. It seems that he's suggesting that he views his singleness as somewhat of a gift. What if we viewed whatever our marital status is as a gift? I mean, this even applies to those, those who are divorced, those who are widowed. There is something that you see and experience and have felt and, and a way in which you view the gospel that is different than, than, than I have. Uh, there's something, a part of those of you who are, who are single and who have, who have never been married, that you see years worth of, of, of singleness. You understand the gospel and the community of Christ in a different way than I do. And what if, rather than say, we all just have to long for this one kind of direction, what if, one kind of status, one kind of whatever, there's one kind of Christian that is the Christian that's made it. What if we understood wherever we are as a gift? What if our spouse was actually the gift that we thought they would be when we weren't married, and now for some reason, now that we're married, we kind of question sometimes and get real frustrated? Wherever you're at, there are many gifts that God has given you. This is a gift in itself. And so he goes through this. He says, to the unmarried, to the widow, I say, uh, let them remain. Because this is a gift. You're in a spot here. Don't worry your days away by trying to change your status. In verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge. Uh, and then he, and he talks about all of these, these detailed rules here about, uh, about divorce and separation here. And I think that brings us to this other principle. He says... View this as a gift. Remain as you are, verse fifteen. Because God has called you to peace. No matter where you are, God has called you to peace. This is where he anchors his entire argument that Christians have no right or have no reasoning, no precedent within the Bible outside of an unbelieving spouse wanting divorce or uh, uh, um, unrepentant adultery. Those are the only two reasons that we read in the Bible for the grounds of divorce. He says, but as a Christian, you almost have, uh, you, you aren't supposed to think, I'm a Christian, now what do I do with my unbelieving spouse? Uh, it seems like I need to be more holy and separate from them and find a Christian spouse. He says, no, 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 no. As a Christian, you actually are called to another level of peace, of making peace within that relationship, of clinging to that in a new understanding. You, maybe, maybe when you exchange vows at your wedding, you didn't understand this thing. You didn't have a, a, a robust you know, theology of, of what the marriage was, But now as a Christian, you have come into this knowledge and you are held to this knowledge. So be at peace. Uh, One one commentator, he says, um, David Garland, he says, in calling a person to salvation, God did not intend to create division in a peaceful marriage by forcing believing spouses to separate from unbelievers. Christians are not to inject turmoil into a relationship that was characterized by peace. I think that makes a ton of sense. If the gospel is a gospel of peace, it seems as though, it seems confusing that when we become Christians, we would then be called to making turmoil in something that was peaceful. Now, I want to stop here because at a certain point, you could be like, okay, you're just preaching and you're not thinking about like real human beings here. There's a lot that I've said. I understand there's a lot here that is, uh, that's pretty rough. Uh, it's pretty, pretty tough to digest. Um, my parents were divorced when I, was, when I was young. And so I've really wrestled through, what does this mean? Like, are my parents okay? Is this a, are, are they in, are they out? Should we reprimand them? I don't know what to do. Um, I've even talked to, to many people uh, within the church uh, over the years um, that uh, have come to faith and are having this question. I know people here in, in, our, uh, in our church that are wrestling through the question of, i become a Christian. What do I do with my unbelieving spouse? And my heart breaks because it's brutal. Like, it, is, it is really rough uh, because you are operating on, especially raising kids. How do you make, what is right? What is good? What is morality? You could reason to it without God, but what happens if you're doing it in the way of Christ? You have to reconcile how you teach morality. It's, it's, it's a really, really difficult thing. Even more so if, if, if the unbelieving spouse is, is not simply not a believer, but is kind of angry against God. I mean that makes it very difficult. What do you do on Easter when you are celebrating the thing that they hate? Um, it's tough. And I don't know if we think through that. Uh, if, you, if you know someone of that, you might be closer to that. But uh, we as a church, what can we do <laughs> uh, with that? I think pray, support, talk through some of those things. Uh, welcome them in. I always think that every conversation is, it leads us to an excuse to talk about Christ. We can talk about Christ. We can let them know, hey, you're part of us. You're part of our company. So we're going to talk about Christ a bit. Really support those spouses who are believers. Because I would say that while they don't have a command, they actually have a command not to separate on the grounds of faith. With an unbelieving spouse, they have a really difficult marriage. They have a really difficult road ahead. They have evangelistic opportunities here, and that's what we get. Who knows? Maybe you will be the one that leads your spouse to God. Maybe you will be that agent that God uses there. But no, if that's you, if you're in that spot, you're wondering, what do I do? How do I get through another day of this marriage? You're not alone. We want to be helping you. And even if we do a terrible job as the church, uh, of doing this which we miss the mark so many times Christ draws near you he, he, he is there with you you're not alone in this marriage and Christ is so much bigger uh, and Christ can do that so pray fervently for your unbelieving spouse we'll continue on because that's one of the statuses uh, that we have But then we get to these other ones that are, that are really strange <laughs> uh, verses 17 through 14 I'll start in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And then we go on to this this discussion of circumcision and slavery. And it seems like an incredibly odd break from the discussion of marital status. I mean, if we're if we're being mindful and we read through this, this, this this should hit us in the face like a two by four. This is weird. What are we talking about? This seeming digression, though, is not really digression. It's a masterful rhetorical device where we think we're talking about marriage, we think we're talking about singleness, and then Paul says, wait, let's back up and see the whole gospel here. And what I'm talking about and how you live out the gospel in whatever context you are given, I'm also talking about and in their time, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, wherever you fall on this, on this uh, ethnic boundary, wherever you fall on these things. Uh, he says, I'm also talking about slavery, whether it's a, a legal agreement there, whether it's a, a job and you're an employer, employee. It's this, this gospel is bigger than everything that we've been talking about. It covers all things. So it's, when you hit that, just kind of a hint, when you, when you read the Bible and you come across stuff that seems really out of place, it's not out of place. You just don't have the whole picture. And so pause on those things and really try and figure out what is the binding theme here? What is going on here? And so this is one of those sections that helps us to see, lifts our gaze to to a much bigger idea of the gospel. God does not require you to change your social marital status to become holier. Rather, you are to speak and live out the good news of Jesus within whatever status you are in, whether that's married or single, whether you're in a certain agreement or a certain job. Uh, Whatever the the, uh, ethnic marker that you might have on you is, you don't need to switch uh, around, uh, whatever it is because you're a Christian. You just live out within those boundaries. You live within those contexts. Should that status change, you go from single to engaged or betrothed to married, uh, then great, that's nice. You take a deep breath, and then you get busy to living out the gospel in that context. But one doesn't require the change. It just informs how you live out life in a given context. And this this follows. We go to verses 18 to 19. We ask this question, does becoming a Christian necessitate circumcision? That is a big thing for them. It's not really a big thing for us. He answers, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called and then he goes on uh, verse 20, 20, uh, 21 through 23 does, it, does becoming a Christian necessitate uh, being a slave or being a free and changing that do we change on our contractual agreements do I need to get a different job here or there and I guess if your job if your agreements are inherently sinful then it's probably a, there's some other things you know, that you need to be thinking through but be, because I'm a Christian does it mean that I'm, I'm holier than my job does it mean that I'm holier than where I'm, where I'm at right now no Verse 24, he says, in whatever condition each has called you, let him remain with God. Because remember, kind of one of his overriding theme in this whole thing is no matter where you're at and what you're doing, you're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he gives you directions on how to live. He gives you an urge of where to go. And he feeds you with the good food of his word and the example of Jesus Christ on how to do that. And you might be single, or married, or divorced, or widowed, or employed, or not, and live out Christ in every day. Lead the life the Lord has assigned you within your status, thinking of it as a context for both loving others and for learning Christ together. So then we get to the next uh, few verses, verses 25 through 31. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you with your eyes on the end. Verse 25 picks up. Now concerning the betrothed. Now the betrothed are those you know, engaged, I guess, would be their, their category uh, if it translates to us today. And I would maybe write it this way. Now concerning those preparing for their change in marital status. Like this is the group that's actually expecting to change. And then kind of in the Josh Casey summary there, I would say the rest of it says, check yourself, check your heart. You're about to change. Are you doing it for the right motives? Are you doing it out of devotion for God? Are you looking at the marriage over the wedding day? And I think that part is a very interesting thing. Parkview pastors are so very passionate about premarital counseling. Uh, Because we have seen, uh, just in our experience, we have seen that that, that oftentimes marriages uh, have uh, unnecessary strife or even move towards separation because they've got their eye on, on the wrong event. Um, oftentimes we think in our culture that the wedding day is, is the point. We look at the wedding day, and, and we, we, we meet with the pastor to prepare the wedding day. That we are going to give them some stories, share some stuff, so that when they preach, it's going to be really, really nice. It's going to be contextualized. The sermon's going to be toward us. And I think sometimes that's, that's maybe a view that we have. Uh, maybe it's just a requirement to use the building, and we meet with the, we meet with the pastor. Um, But if we only focus on that wedding day, that wedding day is over and we've not actually prepared for the lifetime that happens after that. And so within our premarital counseling, the guys do just such a fantastic job of focusing on that marriage. What is a God-glorifying marriage? What are the tools for marriage? Um, When you focus on the marriage, you will find out once you get into it, it's really hard to have the marriage be a celebratory of yourself as you thought it would be. It's just an ongoing uh, ongoing daily task of laying down yourself for the other. And married, premarital counseling does that. It, it, it sets you up for that. Because much, uh, because much of, of this strife happens when you have uh, your view on the wrong event. So from the wedding to the marriage. But I think Paul's taking it a step further here. In verse 29 and 31, he's gonna, he's gonna take this from our, our eyes focused on our marriage and say even that can become the distraction and he's going to put us towards the dawning of eternity. <laughs> he's going to take this to the, the, the crazy, beautiful end that, it, that, that marks uh, and, and sets our course in this life. Verse 29, he says, the appointed time has now grown very, very short. In verse 31, he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. And his point is, uh, so keep your God-ordered priorities in check. I mean, just follow the list there that, that, that comes in these, uh, these verses uh, between 20, uh, 29 and, and thereafter. He basically says, don't, don't raise marriage, don't raise tough times, don't raise mountaintop experiences, don't raise worldly possessions or your job above your devotion to the Lord, the Judge, the King, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, like, to act like you don't have a wife, act like you don't have a job. No, he's saying, don't put that in front of this beautiful picture of Jesus coming. And that's where I feel like he's trying to put us is the gospel sets each one of us in whatever context we're in, right there at the foot of the cross where we confess our sins and we receive our forgiveness and we sit together humbly, loving each other. And we're kind of sitting there with the cross at our back and we're looking out as Christ's return rises in the distance. And we think of all of our relationship and all of our days In that context, not whether we're married or not. And that should shape us towards an undivided devotion. These are the last verses 32 through 40. Lead the life the Lord has assigned with undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 32 I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are undivided. What a fantastic set of verses there, right? I mean, that is uh, that, that could start a fight real fast. Um, God is not, I just want to like possibly, because on first blush, I'm like, I'm thinking like, I want to paint this on the wall of my man cave. I don't have a man cave, but this thing is a great thing for the man cave, right? Although in the machismo of a, of a man cave, I don't think you paint these kind of words on a wall. Uh, I think it breaks one of those rules. It's incredible. Uh, you're like, what are you doing here, Paul? What are you talking about here? Paul is not saying that marriage is an unfortunate distraction from Christ. He's saying it can become this if you've not secured your devotion to the Lord. I think that's, that's the big key here. Your singleness is, is not a distraction because the principle still applies. But it can be if you've put your singleness and your longing for marriage. Maybe, maybe you don't, you're not married, but you long for marriage and that has become an idol to you. And you put that before your devotion to God. Maybe you are divorced And you have an unreconciled bitterness. And that hatred of how the events went down, is they're brutal, uh, has become an idol and a distraction from Christ. And maybe you're widowed. You didn't expect it. You don't get it. You don't understand. There could be hurt. There could be pain. There could be anger. That could become a distraction to Christ. All of us, in whatever when, whatever situation we're in, ha, need to have an undevoted or undivided devotion to the Lord. As when those things become the goal, when marriage becomes the goal, is kind of what he's saying is as you've missed the goal. I'll define marriage here, because I think there's a confusing understanding of what marriage is, especially when we when we read it here with the world's definition of marriage. Marriage, which is different than cohabitating. It is different than a civil union. These are very different things. Marriage is a sanctifying process. That is, it's an ongoing journey. It's an exercise in, in holiness. It, it, it helps us see our sin. It helps build us up in, in ways. And it's, it's a mystery how, how God uses it so well. But marriage is a sanctifying process in which a man and a woman covenant, they promise loyally to one another to daily rehearse the gospel. I mean, that, that's what marriage is. And that's why cohabitating is not that. And that's why just a civil union from the state of any kind is not that. That's why you also have, you sign the legal agreement, right? And then you have a pastor conduct a marriage because that's a different thing. There are two things that happen in most Christians' weddings. Before, the, before Caesar, before God, we are married together and we start this journey together. He says, you will be anxious about what makes, uh, what you make first importance. Paul understands this. You will be anxious about whatever is of first importance to you. If it's marriage, if it's a potential marriage, if it's a previous marriage, he'll be anxious about it. He said, so why not make your devotion to the Lord? Why not make his return the thing that you're anxious for? Put all, of your, put all of your longing, put all of your hope, put all of your energy, put all of your excitement into Christ coming and let that shape every day of your life in singleness, in divorce, in widowhood, and in marriage. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Um, I feel like he, in he, the way he does, Paul just does a fantastic job of just leveling everything once again with the simplicity of the gospel. I think one of, them, uh, one of the urges that we would get here is secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I think that's the biggest point he makes here. Secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. For the unbeliever who is addressed in this text, believe. If you don't know what we're talking about, this, like, this sounds like total foolishness. I think this sounds like foolishness to a lot of Christians because we listen to the world too much. But I think it, it definitely could sound like foolishness. Why would we sit at the cross of Christ? If you don't know who Jesus is, that you are a sinner and that Christ wants to forgive your sins so that you can have a rich, abundant life as a gift, please talk to one of the pastors here. Uh, Please uh, reach out. We want to talk with you, but it's not something you have to have a conversation with us. We don't channel God. You could just say, God, I am a sinner. I'm hurting. I don't know what's going on. Please forgive me. I want to know more. I mean, that is an expression of, of faith, and you can do that now with a genuine heart. Secure your undivided devotion to God and the similar themes that would be happening in an unbeliever happen with the believer. Humility and confession. Go there quickly, often. Own your mess ups and confess them to the people that you've wronged, to God, who you've always wronged. Sit at the foot of the cross and then look with undivided devotion toward the coming eternity. Jesus Christ return. But then let that shape you. Live well where you are now. There are, there, are, there are multiple signs throughout this passage that the word remain shows up. I challenge you that when you study this. Uh, look up how many times the word remain is here. Remain. Stay in the spot you're in. Be content where you're at. You might change status, but be content there. Remain where you're at. Don't spend your days longing for something different. There's this idea that the grass is greener on the other side. When you're single, you want to be married. But then when you're married, you want to be single. Um, the grass is greener on both sides of the fence. And there's plenty of God-glorifying work to be done on both. So get to work doing that. But then I think the one that, that binds us all together here is this idea that we not simply live where we are at individually, but that we, uh, that we embrace where we're at collectively. Um, we're not defined by our status right i've said that a couple times we're not defined by our status so don't live as though we are defined by our status sometimes we put unnecessary stereotypes on there oh we think maybe that widows are always plagued with loneliness and grief Divorce aren't, aren't uh, are 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 exclusively you know, bitter all the time you know uh, i think that they're they're contentious Maybe us uh, singles are, are, are always longing or pining for this, this new thing. Uh, marrieds are always frustrated with their spouse. We think like negative stereotypes on us, and we, we kind of think this sometimes. But that's not what defines us. We're all, we're all Christians. That's what defines us. We're all Christians. So I think it would just be easy not to just walk in and, and think, oh, you, you were this way. I need to talk to you differently. But rather, you're a Christian. We're, we're the same. Let's talk about that a whole lot. We have a lot to talk about when we talk about the gospel. And we're going to find, as we get together, putting those things aside, because Christ puts those things aside, Paul is telling us, put those things aside, we're going to find a richness within the koinonia fellowship that builds us up as we talk about Christ. And if, you, and if, and if, if they're not a Christian, at least you are a Christian, and you, in your Christianness, live out the gospel when you go and talk about Christ more. So make him the point of your conversations. And maybe you'll find out Some of those struggles, some of those sins that come from a status, and those will come as you develop a relationship, as you you get into conversation there, and address those quickly and directly. But I don't know if it has to be the first intro to your conversation there. Just build the bridge so that you can have those tough conversations when they arise, if they arise. Whether it's hurt, whether it's grief, whether it's sin, whether it's virtue, I think this text really puts us into a spot where the Corinthians didn't get it. Now, the Corinthians were very informed, but not very loving. And I think we would do well in our own Corinthian hearts to just lay down those status markers and just enter in as one soul to another, one Christian to another, activate our heart and love and get to know each other. Oftentimes just asking, where are you at? What are you reading? What's God teaching you? Those are great intros. And it may come out, the status may come out in those, but you definitely hear someone's journey in Christ there. And that always a good thing to hear. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned you in whatever context, whatever status God has called you to with an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now I'll pray here, um, but before I do there tonight here in this room at 7 o'clock, 7 to 8.30 tonight, there will be uh, 24-7. They just had some excellent topics of how the gospel shapes certain things. Tonight is gospel and singleness. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you're single, you can hear a word of how this, how this works uh, how the gospel you know shapes some of that singleness, but I would also encourage you, if you are married, maybe even more so if you are married, that sometimes it's so wonderful to get into a space and to just shut up and listen, and to hear how people not like you think about the gospel and they need to be related to. So I would really encourage you all, wherever you're at uh, in, uh, in in your marital status, to come tonight and delight in the gospel as we uh, as we talk through it some more. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And in your plan, you have made us different. You have put us in different seasons of life and you have bound us all together with the same Lord, the same Christ, the same spirit, the same confession, the same faith. We thank you for that. Pray that you would give us grace that you would give us guidance as we try to love each other in a way that is God-glorifying. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Josh. Let's stand and respond to the word together.